self-enlightened Buddha enlightens uh, through his own efforts in the practice he had no teacher he had previously studied with different teachers in India but they uh, hadn't they weren't wise enough to bring him to see the way out of suffering or what we call the experience of enlightenment and the to penetrate the Four Noble Truths. He had to find that out for himself. But then you might think uh, that the Buddha was unique, he was special on his own, and that nobody else could become enlightened in that way. But on this occasion, the uh, 1,250 arahants came together. It's as if they're confirming that uh, human beings can practice this path that the Buddha taught. And this path, we say, sabhapapasa akaranang, abandoning all that is unwholesome, meaning all that is unwholesome in our mind, mental states, mano karma, mental karma, uh, in our speech, wajikama, in our actions, gaya karma. Learning to restrain and give up or change our habits of body, speech and mind. And this is the heart of the Buddhist practice, the path to enlightenment. Restraining and eventually abandoning all that is unwholesome or evil or negative from our mind, from our speech, from our actions. Kusala Supasampada, developing that which is good. So developing good karma through body, speech and mind. We've all heard this many times, but on that occasion the gathering of those enlightened disciples, they were ones who had as if, uh, you might say, finished the course. They'd, they'd studied and practiced that course of teaching or learning that the Buddha Gave and they'd come to completion. So as if they'd come to the point where they received their degree, their master's degree, their doctorate, their bachelor's de de degree in Buddhism. Well, this isn't just a degree as in uh, a piece of paper that one uh, gains through studying in an education institution and then being given um, a certificate to prove that one has uh, passed the exams and so on. And this is, um, you might say, an, an inner education that those enlightened disciples had completed. They'd learned to educate themselves in this path that the Buddha taught. So that's the path of abandoning the unwholesome, perfecting that which is good, purifying the mind. If you think about it, in life often we like the idea of doing good Right, we come to the temple, we say, I'm going to the temple to make merit, to tambun, to do that which is good, make offerings, listen to Dhamma. But often we forget the very first teaching was actually to abandon that which is not good, to give that up. And you can't really do good unless you're also giving up that which is not good, that which is unwholesome, that which causes a suffering and other people's suffering. These two things go together and we often forget this. Uh, 
Because the idea of doing good is very nice. We like to think about that and reflect on that. But the idea of giving up evil, it sounds more difficult, harder, uh, which is probably why the Buddha put it first. Didn't he? We have to abandon the unwholesome, give up the unwholesome. That was the very first teaching in this, in this small teaching he gave. So the way we do that in, in our practice as we do good, say we do the good of practicing generosity in our life, generosity in our families, in society, supporting uh, the religion, helping those who are less fortunate than us, uh, the poor, the sick and so on. And as you practice generosity, you're also practicing giving up or abandoning the opposite of generosity, which is stinginess or selfishness. On another level, practicing sila, what we call morality or restraint in our daily life. It's restraint of our actions, of our speech, so that we're not harming others with our actions, our speech. We're necessarily giving up the unwholesome in that by giving up our tendency towards harming others through our speech or our actions. If you're going to practice uh, moral restraint, then you have to give up that which is unrestrained or immoral. So you're practicing these two things together. And the result of that, when we practice restraint in our speech, our actions, is that we feel good. It's a kind of happiness. It's a happiness born of a sense of self-respect and peace of mind arising out of the fact that we're not doing anything that we, we regret or we feel guilty about. You notice any day in your life, if you're careful what you say, what you do, how you relate to other people, you might go through that whole day and you don't do anything that harms anybody, yourself, other people, at the end of that day, you can feel quite good, quite happy in yourself because you have a sense of self-respect. You might even say self-confidence arises because you're, you have a certain sense of um, care and attention to how you're living. Whereas at other times, if we're perhaps a little more unrestrained and we give in to our moods and we say or do things that harm other people, then of course at that time we start to feel some regret. Uh, we all know what it's like sometimes to feel guilty. We've said something or done something that we weren't happy with and only later on we think about it. It comes up in our memory and we don't feel good and we start to feel guilty, feel bad. Well that's the result of losing our sila, losing our restraint. So the Buddha said to, to develop that which is good, abandon that which is unwholesome, means to learn how to be careful what we say, what we do in our life. If we are careful, then it starts to bring a very firm foundation to our life. This sense of self-respect, self-confidence starts to arise. We don't have much doubt about what we've done because we know what we've done is good. We haven't done anything uh, negative or harmful to ourselves or others. So it's a bit like they compare it to building a building, say a building like this, this, this Ubozada hall that we built. 
when we gave the specification to the engineer who was helping the architect design this hall, he said, well, we asked him, uh, how long will you guarantee the life of this hall? How long will it last? He said, usually we guarantee for about 50 years the life of a building. So he said, is there any way you can make it last longer so that future generations can benefit from it? He said, yes, if we increase the strength of the foundations, meaning if we increase the thickness of the concrete, of the slab, and then the metal piles, these long rods of metal that go down into the ground underneath this building, if we thicken them and make them go deeper, then the building we can guarantee up to 100 years. So we asked them to do that. Obviously it cost more money, but um, our intention was to build a building that's very solid, won't fall down very easily, won't crack, won't um, disappear too quickly. So they made foundations that went six meters down into the ground, very, very deep. And uh, not long after it was finished, we actually had an earthquake in this area. Very rarely do you get earthquakes in Warburton, but there was that year there was an earthquake in Warburton. As noticeable, the house or the, the eating hall and the kitchen over there, those buildings, they shook when the earthquake happened and you could feel the shaking of the building. But this building, the monks inside the building said they couldn't tell there was an earthquake. It didn't seem to move at all. There was no shaking. That's a sign of very firm foundations. And the Buddha said that our sila, our practice of morality, restraint, carefulness in daily life, this is like a firm foundation you're building for your long-lasting happiness. So if you think about it, if day by day you're careful what you do, what you say, how you relate to other people, you're sensitive to other people, you don't just think of yourself in a sort of selfish way, but you also think about the people around you, how you speak to them, how you relate to them, and think of their benefit as well as your own. Well, the result of that is that you have a mind that is free from regret because you're being careful how you act, how you interrelate with the world around you. That freedom from regret, the Buddha said, is a very special kind of happiness. It brings a, a, a great sense of personal um, stability in your life. You notice if times in your life you're feeling unstable, shaky in your mind, you lose your self-confidence, your self-esteem, your mind is full of regret or doubt, uh, you have a lot of negativity or stress, often that's related to what we've been doing, our actions, what we've been saying, what we've been doing in, in our life prior to that moment. So a simple way to understand this is say, you know, if you unfortunately get caught into an argument with someone and you talk to them and you, know, you lose your temper, you say a few words, you're rude or whatever, and they might, might also argue back with you. How do you feel after that? You, know, you can't walk away from an argument and say, well, I feel very cool and calm and stable. For sure you'll feel pretty upset, agitated in your mind, unstable. 
You might even have some regret. Maybe you said or did something that you regret later. But this is an example of how, uh, or the, the role of sila, the role of restraint in our life is. If if we are more restrained, we're more careful what we say and what we do. Then we're protecting our own peace of mind, and it gives us a very strong foundation in our life. We don't have to doubt what we've done, and other people don't doubt us either. So we start to get. Uh, the trust of other people. We trust ourselves and we tr- other people trust us. And just like a building that has strong foundations, that building will tend to last a long, long time, even when there's strong winds and storms and earthquakes and all the other kind of uh, possible natural phenomena that could arise to disturb or damage that building. The building will, will tend to last through it all. Well, similarly, if we build a strong foundation in our sila, who we're not too proud, too egotistical, or too selfish in our behavior, we know how to be humble, we know how to be accommodating to others, uh, generous in our heart as well as our actions. If we develop these kind of qualities, then the result is that we have a strong, stable sense of well-being. This sense of well-being will go with us wherever we go. In whatever situations you encounter in life, you encounter good situations, not so good situations, good people and not so good people, whether your health is good, your health is not good and so on. If you take the time to invest in Dhamma practice in this way, your stability of mind, peace of mind will come up and it will bring you a long-lasting sense of happiness, the happiness of no regrets and you have a sense of self-confidence, self-esteem. The Buddha said this is the foundation of our Dhamma practice, abandoning the unwholesome, doing the good. If we don't get the foundation right, then it's very difficult for the other kinds of good qualities and the other kinds of happiness that arise out of the practice to arise. Say particularly the happiness that comes from the practice of meditation. If you have ever tried meditation, learning to calm your mind, say using the breathing meditation, you'll notice if your mind is not peaceful as you're meditating, it's agitated, a large part of that agitation will probably be due to things that you've said and done in the past coming up and bothering you. Uh, Remembering things, remembering incidents and issues and problems that have come up in the past bothering you and it it makes the mind not peaceful at that time, difficult to concentrate. Or similarly, it might be thoughts about what you might be going to do that is maybe not so skillful. Those kind of thoughts would tend to agitate the mind, make it very difficult to concentrate. Again, if you have a very strong mood of anger or selfishness or greed, fear or worry and so on, and those moods come up, well, it takes away your, your, your ability to concentrate, whether you're meditating or in any other aspect of life. So when you do meditate, you see the relationship between how you lead your life, your actions, your, you might say your lifestyle, and your peace of mind very clearly. You'll see everything that you say and do in life, you have to remember it. So if you have done things maybe that 
you lost your carefulness, your attentiveness in your daily life and you said or did something harmful, well you have to remember that and that's where your agitation comes. So you have to learn how to deal with that and partly to learn how to accept the mistakes you've done, forgive yourself, let go. But also you have to learn maybe to be more careful in the future and say, well, in the future I'll be more careful, more restrained, I'm not going to do that again. Most people, when they meditate, they learn these kind of lessons. I was just hearing um, recently a story from China about this. Uh, They say it's a true story. It's a story about a mother and her son um, the son was born, the father died when they were young, when he was young. So the son was brought up by the mother alone. And she, he was all the mother had. They lived on a, a mountain in a very poor part of China. And there were farmers. And the mother, all she had was her son. So she loved him, adored him, and showered him with love. And you might say spoiled him. You let him do anything as he grew up, when he was young, it didn't matter too much. He was spoiled, but it didn't matter. He was only young. But as he got older, because he became a young man, he was stronger and bigger. The fact that she had uh, loved him and spoiled him meant that he started to be a bit careless in the way he treated her, didn't really respect her, and started to treat her more like he's just sort of his servant rather than his mother. He lost the sense of being a son and a mother. It's more just, uh, you're my servant, you just have to do what I I want to make me happy. So whenever he wanted food, he'd just say, give me my food, get me my food, wash my clothes, and so on. He'd just order his mother around without much respect. And he never realized what he was doing. He's always complaining, scolding his mother, being very rude, very aggressive to his mother. But then one day he was out on the mountains, and they were goat herders. So he would take the goats out to look after the goats on the mountain and they would feed on the grass on the mountain. And there was another goat nearby. He was looking after one goat. There was another goat nearby. It was a mother goat. He didn't realize, but this this goat didn't belong to him. So at first he was going to shoo it away. He said, oh, this goat's going to come and eat the grass that my goat should be eating. So he went over to shoo it away. But as he got close to it, he realized it was a mother goat with a baby, a newborn baby goat. And the baby goat was suckling at the mother's uh, teats. It was taking milk as a young goat would. And just as he was about to hit or kick the mother goat to get it away from his own land, he, he saw the baby goat and he had a moment of compassion arise and he thought, hmm, oh, it's a mother goat. That's why she's not running away when I shout at her. She's got to look after this baby, this kid, this baby goat. I better not hit it. He had a moment of compassion and he realized, oh, it's, it's wrong to hit this mother goat. So he went back and sat down where he was tending his own goats. And then it dawned on him, he said, hmm, yeah, this is a lesson, isn't it? I, I never realize how much I've hurt my own mother. I never realize how much she's given to me, just like that mother goat is giving to her baby. All the baby does is bleat a bit. It cries a little bit and then comes up and sucks the milk of the mother. It never harms the mother. But what do I do? I don't only take food from my mother. Previously I took her milk, now I take food. But I scold her, I hit her, I give her a very difficult time. So I'm much worse than that baby goat. 
you know, I'm really a worthless person. So he had all this remorse and regret come up. Just like someone meditating, you know, he started to realize his past actions and see the negative side of it all. So he felt a lot of sadness and regret. And he thought, I've got to make it up to my mum. I've got to go and apologize to her. I've got to go and make it up. I've got to um, start to improve myself, make myself a better person. This is like someone practicing the Buddhist teachings, isn't it? I've got to abandon that which is unwholesome or evil and do more good. He had that insight at that moment. So he started running back to his home. Just at that moment, his mum was leaving home to bring him his lunch up on the hill, which he'd do every day. And normally he would just scold her and tell her, oh, you're late, or it's not enough food, or the wrong food, or whatever. And she was always wary of him because she knew he could become violent and aggressive. So she saw him running towards her and he was running towards her with joy because he'd finally realized how bad he'd been and he was now going to change. And he was running to go up to ask forgiveness from his mum. But she saw him running towards him. She thought, oh, today he's really lost the plot. He's really angry. And she got scared and thought, oh, he's going to come and really hurt me. So she started running in the other direction. She turned around and started running away from him. And the faster she ran, the faster he ran after her. And she got more and more scared because he just assumed the worst, thinking, oh, he's going to come and attack me physically. And she got to the edge of the hill and there was a, a cliff, a drop, and there's a river underneath. And this river was very, a mountain river, so it's fast-running water with whirlpools and rocks and rapids and so she got to that point and he was running almost caught her and she was so scared she thought if I let my son catch me he'll kill me and make such bad karma I don't want him to die and fall into hell but if I jump over this I'll die but at least my son won't make the bad karma of killing his mother so she jumped she jumped over the cliff committed suicide as it were in order to prevent her son from killing her even though he wasn't planning that it was a great misunderstanding based on the past experience the mother had had there's an interesting story life is like that isn't it sometimes we just don't realize what we're doing we can push other people to that kind of limits we can harm other people with our speech our actions sometimes we harm ourselves But the Buddhist path is one of wise reflection, learning to sit down and wisely reflect on your own actions, to learn what is negative, what is positive, what is good, what is bad in what we do, what we say. And the best way to do this is through meditation, where you're really learning to calm your mind and you can see all your intentions, your thoughts, your mental states arising. And the more we practice this, learning to calm, concentrate the mind, the more you can see that which is wholesome and that which is unwholesome in your mind. And if you can really see something which is unwholesome, say a negative thought, maybe greed or anger, well, you'll have the sense of, oh, this is something not good. You'll see it maybe as something like a, a blemish, something that you know brings your mind unhappiness, makes you stress, makes you feel unhappy in yourself, you'll see it's something that should be abandoned, should be given up. That's the kind of wisdom the Buddha was encouraging us to develop, where we can see for ourselves, with our own mind, our own inner 
awareness, we see that which is negative should be abandoned. And if you can have enough awareness to abandon, you know, just one momentary thought of greed and selfishness or anger, well, that's a little moment of enlightenment. Maybe that greed or anger might arise again, but at least this is one moment where you're letting go and you feel good for that. You feel the peace, the happiness for that. Um, and if you join all those moments up, well, then you're on the path to enlightenment. You're really purifying your mind. So today I've just been talking a little bit about the Buddhist path to purification of the mind. Um, today is Marga Puja, so we're going to celebrate it with a circumambulation around the hall. Um, just before we do that, I'll give you the five precepts in a traditional way. You can maybe determine to keep the five precepts, at least for today. And then we'll just say a short verse together and do our circumambulation. <laughs> <laughs> 